Matthew 5, 13 through 16, reading from the ESV. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God add his, his blessing to the reading of the word this morning uh, and to Tyler as he uh, comes later to preach. Good morning, everyone. Um, so this Sunday, as well as for the first five Sundays of the new year, we're going to be starting a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus's words in Matthew 5 to 9. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually recorded in two places in Scripture. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's also in the Gospel of Luke. But in the Gospel of Matthew, it's a little bit of a lengthier version. And so that's the one that we're going to be looking at. Um, the Gospel of Matthew, actually, funny enough, it was, it was like the early church's favorite book of the Bible. I don't know if you have a favorite book of the Bible, but the early church in like the early days after Jesus walked the earth, their favorite book was the Gospel of Matthew. So it was like the most read, the most preached, the most, um, the most copied in all these ways. They just loved the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and I think that's partly for two reasons. And really, the primary reason is because the Gospel of Matthew, it, it asks two questions. It asks, who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? So who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? And so I think the early church really early on was like, this is a book that we love because these are two questions that we're asking. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? So we've entitled our sermon series for the next six weeks, Resolutions from the Mount. Um, and that was uh, Greg Phelan's little bit of play on words on New Year's resolutions. Um, because we're going to, as we begin the new year, ask this question together as a church of what it might look like to, for us to follow Jesus in further and deeper ways. So we spent this last fall talking about the book of Exodus. Um, and so there's actually a lot of cool parallels between the book of Matthew and the book of Exodus. And that really boils down to because Jesus is a better Moses. So Jesus is a better Moses. And we see this in all sorts of ways, but probably the two biggest ways are Moses leads the people of God out of slavery and sin and what does Jesus do? He leads the people of God out of slavery and sin. And then as we come to our text this morning, what Moses does is goes up on a mountain and gets the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he goes and he gives them to the people of God. And now the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus going up on a mountain, and he is God and giving the law of God, the word of God, to the people of God. And so Jesus, over and over again, does all these things that Moses does, um, but for all people, not just for the Jewish people. So Pastor Doug's going to handle this in more detail next week. But when Jesus sums up the law, here's how he sums it up. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So Jesus is our lawgiver. We have a new covenant with God, different than the Old Testament covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. He's our lawgiver. 
And so we're going to dive into the Gospel of Matthew to see um, what it looks like for Jesus. So let's pray for, uh, let me pray for us as we jump in. God, speak to us this morning as we seek to learn more about who you are and what you've called us to do. Um, It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the passage that Tim read for us, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, that's our passage this morning. Um, You can pull out your Bibles and look at it, or you can just listen as we talk about it. Um, But there's really two themes there that Tim read for us, and that's that God is asking us to be salt and light in this world. He's asking us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So we're going to look at each one, and first we're going to look at what it means to be the salt of the earth. So here's what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, just a touch of background. Um, this is Matthew chapter 5. So, Jesus actually just started his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. So, we're at the very start of Jesus' ministry. And what Jesus, he starts wandering around northern Israel, a little place called Galilee. And he's wandering around, he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing people and he's caring for the sick and for the poor and he's doing all these things and people just start following him kind of a wild thing to do like some preacher man is just wandering around town and as he starts to do things a crowd just starts to gather and follow him so the context of our passage this morning is jesus basically turns around and goes there are thousands of people following me um and so he climbs up a mountain the the mount of olives where the sermon on the mount is and he sits down and he and he says, like, here we go. And he, for the next five chapters, it's all of Jesus' words that he's sharing from the Sermon on the Mount. So that's our context, is all these people have decided, we're just going to follow this guy. And as they begin to follow him, I think their natural question is, what does it look like to follow you? As in, what would this involve? Like, if I continue to follow this guy, Jesus... What would he require of me? What would it look like to follow him? How would I need to change my life if I was going to follow Jesus? I think those questions that those Jewish people were asking 2,000 years ago are the same questions we're asking today. As in, if I were going to like buy in for the first time or maybe for the 30th time to following Jesus, if I were going to buy into that, what would it look like for me? If I was going to go deeper with this guy, Jesus, if I was going to spend more time with his people, if I was going to spend more time following him, what would it look like? So these are the questions they asked then and the questions we ask today. Because I think for many of us, if we're honest, whether we've been following Jesus for a year or, or 50 years, we kind of have this, this feeling, this thinking question of, is there more to following Jesus than what I'm experiencing right now? If we're honest, that's where a lot of us are at. We're saying, what, what more might there be with me following Jesus? I'm doing some of these things. I'm going to church sometimes. I'm giving away some of my money. But what, what could it look like for me to follow Jesus? And as Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I think a lot of us look around and go, I'm not so sure that this is the full life that Jesus is talking about. 
So this, these are the questions they're asking 2,000 years ago, and I think they're the questions we're asking today. What does it really look like for us to follow Jesus? How can we go deeper and further in this? So Jesus gives his followers that day, and he gives us today these two pictures, salt and light. Um, and I know, I know this isn't like a super good time to remind you all of this, um, but as we talk about being salt of the earth, the first thing we should look at is how, how ancient Israel was different than like modern day Williamstown. Um, and the, the, the primary thing is that it is really cold here, and it wasn't so cold in ancient Israel. So ancient Israel would best be described as either a desert or like a tropical place, depending on where you are in the country. It's kind of a wild country. I don't know if, if any of you have been there. It's either a desert or it's like tropical. And so that's, the, that's what, they're, what they're entering into. And so when Jesus was saying, you're the salt of the earth, um, he, he had something slightly different in mind than when we think we're the salt of the earth. So if we want to preserve our food, um, we, for four to six months out of the year, we can just like leave it in the car. That's what I do when I go get groceries, just leave them in the car for, for four to six months. No. Um, but I, you can leave them in the car. You can leave them on the deck. There's, there's all sorts of ways that you could preserve your food. But in, in ancient Israel in the ancient Near East, preserving food pretty much looked like just rubbing salt in it. That was the primary method which, with, with which they would preserve food. So, the other thing about salt in the ancient Near East is they didn't have a ton of spices either. They didn't have like a, an ancient Near Eastern spice rack. You couldn't go, to, couldn't go to Costco and buy one of those. So the, an ancient Near Eastern spice rack pretty much just looked like salt. So, so historically, those are the two uses of salt that we should be thinking about. Salt preserves things and it flavors things. That's what salt does. And so as we think... You know, what does Jesus mean when he's saying you're the salt of the earth? Salt preserves, preserves things and it flavors things. So I like, I like making cookies more than the average 27-year-old guy, um, but I'm still not like an expert in the areas of baking or cooking. So this past Thursday, I was writing my sermon from my parents' house, um, and I was, sitting, I was sitting at the kitchen counter, and I was like writing my sermon, and I was thinking about like salt and what, what role it plays. And, and so I thought I would ask my mom and my little brother, who are both really big bakers, I was like, so tell me, what difference does salt make in like those raspberry pancakes you're making right now? Like, if you left the salt out, how much of a difference would that make? Um, and they just kind of laughed at me, and then they said, we're going to leave the salt out of your pancakes. And so I quickly backtracked, and, I, and so I'm here to tell you this morning that salt makes a big difference in baking. So if I, I would say outside of a few select foods like chips and some things like that, most foods aren't meant to be super salty. Like that isn't the, that isn't the flavor that most foods are trying to put forth, but yet, that's, that, but yet salt is in most things. And so if you walk with me a little further in this metaphor, the purpose of salt is to be spread out. The purpose of salt is to bring out all the other flavors. Like if you have a really good batch of cookies or some really good pancakes or even a really good batch of scrambled eggs, there's salt in there, but you usually don't taste the salt. Salt is key, but you don't always taste it. And so I want to take this two places first with our relationship with Jesus. Jesus should affect every aspect of our life. 
Jesus should be spread out evenly throughout our life. There shouldn't just be like one pocket of our life that Jesus has all this stuff to do with and then everything else Jesus doesn't go near. Jesus needs to be spread out throughout our life. And then secondly, as Christians, we're supposed to provide the life and flavor of this world. And so we need to spread out in order to do that because a, a big bunch, a big clump of salt, if you've ever had one of those in like a, in a batch of cookies, like it's not great. That's not what you want. You don't want a big clump of salt. You don't want a big clump of baking soda. Those are things you want them spread out a little bit. And so that's also our role as Christians is we need to spread out a little bit too in this world. We need to go and be places where there isn't as much salt because they need that salt. And so that's our first application this morning is Jesus should affect every aspect of our life and we should be with those people who don't know Jesus. So moving on a little bit, Jesus has some kind of harsher words in verse 13. He says, If salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this was also culinary news to me. Salt can lose its taste. Did not know that. Um, And apparently in the ancient Near East, I had to like really look this one up. Apparently in the ancient Near East, when salt went bad, when it couldn't fulfill its function anymore, they threw it out their windows um, onto their roofs, and they did that. This is what historians say, so I'm trusting historians right now. Um, and Chris is a history person, so I don't know. You'll, you, you do with that what you will. But so, so the salt goes bad. The salt has no flavor, and so they throw it out their windows, and it, and it goes on their roofs to harden their roofs. And apparently, kids love to play on roofs, both now and then. Um, and so the kids would run around on the roofs and, and, and play on them. And so that's what, that's what Jesus had in mind here, is this picture of, of people throwing out the salt on their roof because it, doesn't use, it isn't useful anymore, and the kids would just trample around on it. Um, and its only use left was to make a roof a little more solid. So that, that Greek word, to become useless... It's this word muranthe, and it, and it also, it means to become useless, but it can also mean to lose function or to act silly or stupid. So what I want to propose to you this morning is that a Christian, someone who's following Jesus that doesn't bring flavor and life everywhere they go, they've lost their intended function. They're silly. It's like comical. If a Christian isn't bringing life and flavor out into the world and is just staying so focused on themselves, then they've lost their very intended function. And also for the record, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question. Um, it isn't meant to have, its ans- to have an answer. It's also, I, so I learned that salt can lose its flavor and it also can't go back to that. So I've learned a lot about salt while writing this sermon. Um, so, but I think you might know where I'm going with this a little bit. We, so we as Christians are called to be the salt of this town and of this community. And so if being the salt of the earth means bringing out the flavor and life of everything, then how are we doing this? I want you to be a little bit self-reflective here. How are we different How are we outward focused, focused on bringing life to those around us? 
How do we avoid clumping together? Jesus is clearly saying the salt should go out. And how do we spice things up, so to speak? How do we change things around us for the good? And the other function of salt is to preserve things. And so a little fun medical fact for you that I checked with uh, resident nurse Grace um, is that we don't have salt in our bodies naturally. As in salt is something that has to be a part of our diet, but it's also crucial for us because salt helps us absorb fluids and absorb nutrients. And so being without salt is a really big problem, but we don't naturally produce it as with any sort of process in our bodies. And so the funny thing about that then is Jesus is telling us that we are the salt of the earth. But the first thing we have to acknowledge is that we're not actually salty on our own. Like we don't have anything in us inherently that's salty. We're only the salt of the earth. We're only the salt of the earth because of Jesus who dwells in us. So you are only the salt of the earth because Jesus is the true salt of the earth. And this is something we'll see over and over again, that it isn't inherently us that's salty or that's the light of the world. It's Jesus who is in us. And here's something else. Before you're the salt of the earth, you also have to acknowledge that you, that you were dying, we're decaying. Every one of us, it's like a 100% death rate. Every one of us, we get older and we die and we decay and our bodies shut down. Like our world has tried to stop that process more than maybe anything, but that's where we're all headed. We're all getting older, we're all decaying, and we're all dying. And so if we think about salt's role as being to preserve, one of the things we're asking is how Jesus might preserve us. Because the book of Ecclesiastes says, from dust you are and to dust you shall return. And so we need Jesus Christ to be our salt, to be our preserving power in our life. We need him to bring us that flavor and then we can go be salt in the world. So it isn't anything about us intrinsically. It's about Jesus who is in us. And so it's a funny thing about commands in the Bible is they're often commands that we can't follow. Jesus is saying, go be the salt of the earth. And you go, well, there's nothing inherently like salty about me. And he's saying, well, I'll be in you. I'll be with you. And the last, the last test of saltiness, and after this we'll, we'll move on, is what does salt do more than most things? Like if you're eating a bag of potato chips, what do you have to do right after you eat those potato chips? You're thirsty. You have to drink. And so the last thing that it means if we're going to be salt of the earth is that we need to make people thirsty because Jesus is the true, he's the true water. If you think about Jesus at, with the woman at the well, what he says is I'm living water. I'm going to make you thirst no more. And so if we're supposed to be the salt of the earth, we're supposed to create thirst in other people and then have those other people not come to us, but we're supposed to point them to Jesus because he's going to satisfy their thirst. He's going to satisfy their thirst, not us. So look down with me, um, verse 14 to 16. So, you are the light of the world. That's our next one. Here's what it says. It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. 
So our second picture of what a follower of Jesus should look like, we have, you're the salt of the earth. The next one we have is, you're the light of the world. And the salt of the earth one is a little bit more manageable for me. Like, I can be salty. I can, I can, be, I can agitate people. I can be salty. That's reasonable. But being, being asked to be the light of the world seems a little crazy to me. Like, you and me as the light of the world. As in the world's going to be a dark place if we're not around. It just, it just doesn't sound like Jesus' A plan. But it is. So in, in September, my friend Danny and I went, uh, we went for a long hike on the, on, on the presidential traverse in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And I, like, love to sleep in with all of my heart. And so we slept in pretty late and we got started on this hike at like 10:30 or 11 and that by all intensive purposes is a very bad idea and so it's a really long day and so we got started at like 10:30 or 11 as we're passing people on the trail they're like what are you doing today and we're like the traverse and they're like you're crazy how strong is your headlamp um and so i thought it would be all fine and well because i tend to overestimate um my and others abilities uh, but so then we're sitting on top of Mount Washington, uh, the tallest mountain in the northeast, at like 5 p.m. And the sun is going down and we have like four mountains left. So that's not a great position to be in. Um, so that's that's where we're at. And I think I was also supposed to pick Grace up that night and that didn't happen either. So thank you, Tim and Val, for uh, picking up Grace. So anyway, it's getting dark and we were like, OK, we're going to be hiking in the dark for at least four to five hours. And so we pull out our headlamps, and my friend Danny pulls out his headlamp, and it's like a car's high beams. Like, he puts it on, and it's like you can see 30 to 40 feet out in front. It's like the strongest light I've ever seen. And I pull out my little headlamp, and it's like the dimmest, <laughs> it's the dimmest light possible. And as, as, like, the hours go by, my light just gets dimmer and dimmer, and Danny's just stays, like, so strong, like a car's head beams. Everywhere he looks, like deer are running in the opposite direction. And so as we're hiking along, um, I realized the only way that I'm not going to trip and fall down this mountain is if I just, like, hike so close to Danny, like, weirdly close to Danny. And so I'm, like, hiking super close to Danny because I realized otherwise I'm going to trip and fall. Um, but what I also realized is that the closer I got to Danny, the brighter my light appeared. And it wasn't actually because my light was any brighter. It was just because I was so close to Danny's light. And so I want to propose that this is in many ways how we should think about Jesus and his light. As in, if we get so close to Jesus, if we're stepping where he's stepping and we're following him so closely, then our little dim light just gets like assumed and brought up into his bright light. And I think that's what Jesus means when he's telling us that we're the light of the world. He's not saying like, just go off by yourself and like cast light everywhere. What he's saying is, follow me so closely that your dim light will be caught up in my bright light. Because if we follow Jesus so closely, here are the things we're going to do. We're going to forgive others. We're going to care for the poor. We're going to be radically hospitable and radically generous. We're going to reconcile broken relationships. We're going to speak the truth in love. Those are all the things that we're going to do if we're following Jesus so closely and those are all the things that bring light into this world. And I know that sounds like super overwhelming to start. 
So I, I want you to think for a moment about one person that you can show hospitality to. Or one person you can try to reconcile a broken relationship with. Or one person you can be generous with. Or one person you can forgive. Like pick one person. Pick one person that you can bring a little bit of light to. And then go do it. Like we get so caught up sometimes in doing, in doing these like massive things and being this massive light of the world. And I think sometimes Jesus is saying like, just go do the little thing. Just go pick one little thing and do it. Because Jesus isn't saying that there's any light inherent in us. Because like, like we said with the salt of the earth, there isn't anything inherently salty in us and there isn't in any inherent light in us. Like yes, we're created in God's image. But Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, There is no one who does good, no one who seeks for God. No, not one. That's, that's the human condition. So we aren't inherently bringing a bunch of light into this world. In fact, many of the problems in this world are caused by people who think that they're the light of the world. I know you all know people who think that they're the light of the world, and you don't like those people. <laughs> If, some, if, someone, if someone walked up to you on the street and said, I'm the light of the world, you put your head down and you walk faster. That's what you do. So the Bible is, is, is holding these two things in tension. Psalm 18, verse 28 says, For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. So as 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 God's image bearers who are broken people, we have the potential for light because we have the potential for God to dwell in us. We don't have light intrinsically in us. We aren't intrinsically so good and awesome, but we can have God dwell in us. We're broken people. We can't be the light of the world. Only Jesus can. But when we walk so close to him, when we follow him, his light becomes our light. He lightens our darkness. And so Jesus goes on in the next verse to explain a little bit more of this. He says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So the message here is simple. If, if we're going to be the light of the world because God is going to dwell in us, then we can't hide ourselves. And so the city one is, the picture there is cities were all always set on hills in ancient times, mostly to defend against enemies, but also because if a city was on a hill, you could see it from a long ways away. You could see Jerusalem from miles and miles away, so you knew where you were going. The other picture, um, I don't totally get what Jesus was going at. It's kind of a funny example. He's like, if you put a basket on a lamp, there's not going to be light. Like, Yes, Jesus, of course. <laughs> of course there's not going to be light if you put a basket on your lamp. Um, but I think one of Jesus' like most underrated characteristics is humor. So I think to us it's not that funny, but maybe to first century Jews, they were all on the mountain just like rolling in laughter, like, Jesus, you're so funny. So maybe that's it. Um, but for us, we're like, yes, okay, there's no, don't put a basket on your lamp. Got it. Um, I won't plan to do that. But so, so the goal for, for our light as followers of Jesus is, is to enlighten the world. And 
And I want to ask a, a little question here, too. Where does a light make the most difference? In a room with a bunch of other lights or in a dark place? So if we're all sitting in here with our little lights and my old the property and finance guy at my old church, we used to have like a coffee and bagel time. And, and, he, and he told me it was so hot in that room. It was like a million degrees. And he told me the average person gives off heat according to like a 100-watt light bulb. And so you, you should think about yourself right now. Picture yourself. I'm a 100-watt light bulb. Um, and so if we're all little 100-watt light bulbs, then if we all hang out in the same place, if we all hang out in the same room all the time, it's just going to be a pretty bright room. And that's great and all, but then there are other rooms in this world that don't have any light at all. And those rooms need some light. And so our goal then as Christians, we need to be together. We need to, we need to pray together. We need to come to church. We need to read God's word. We need to be together, but we also need to go be in dark places. And so... There are two ways that I think we should think about this as being true. First, with our private life. And we talked about this a little bit on Christmas Eve. Where are the areas in our lives that we aren't letting the light go? Like, if, if, if Jesus is our light, where are the rooms in our, life that, in our lives that we just aren't letting God go? Where are we saying, like, Jesus, you can touch maybe, like, my marriage and maybe my parenting, but you can't touch my work. Or, Jesus, you can touch my hobbies and, and, and what I like to do, but you really can't go near that relationship with my parents. Like, there are different ways in which we say, we say, Jesus, you can go here, but you can't go here. And so I think we should ask this question for our private lives, but then we should also ask it for our public lives. Like, in the way in which we, in what others see, wh- where do they see Jesus and where do they not see Jesus? Because I know as we're thinking about this, we all have places and times where we distinctly are like, turn the light off. (laughs) The light's too bright, turn the light off. I know we all do that. And so who is missing out on Jesus because we're hiding our light? Who's missing out on Jesus because we're hiding our light? And I also want to point this out at this point, that. Showing forth Jesus's light involves words and it involves actions. It it involves words and it involves actions. And some of us love the word part. Some of us love to tell people about Jesus. And that's amazing. That's awesome. But then we also need to live those things out. We also need to care for them and be generous with them and meet their needs and invite them in. We also need to do that part. Others of us, We love doing those things, but we don't want to talk about it at all. We don't want to talk about Jesus because it might make things weird and uncomfortable. And what I'm here to say this morning is Jesus is the the true light of the world, and so he's our model for this, and he always did those two things together. Always. Right before Jesus preaches this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 9, this massive long sermon, right before he's healing the sick, he's caring for the poor, he's visiting people, he's out doing it. He's out being the light. And so we have to hold those two in tension. And that's what often super conservative churches and super liberal churches, they they fling to one end or the other. Sometimes they get so obsessed with doing stuff that they forget to talk about Jesus or they get so obsessed with talking about Jesus that they forget to ever act like him. We've got to hold those two things in tension. Because Jesus changes everything 
when we bring his light to bear on other people. So the final verse of our passage, it says this. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when you're reading scripture and you see like a so that statement, a little like so that, a little alarm should go off in your head. It should be like ding, 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 because that's when you get the reason behind the command. Because I, I know, we all know there's a lot of commands in the Bible, and sometimes we're like, why do we need to do these things? And so whenever a so that comes, it's saying, right after this, here's the reason why I'm asking you to do this. So here's the reason why Jesus is asking us to be salt of the earth and light of the world. He says, so that others will see our good works and give glory to God. This is where it gets challenging in many ways. Because this puts some of this on us. People should look at our lives. They should look at how we live and what we say and what we do. And they should go, hmm. They must be doing these things because of who their God is. And that's, that's like a big responsibility. And that's hard to do, but that's what Jesus is asking us to do. He's saying, go be salt of the earth. Go be the light of the world so that people will see those things and give glory to God. So they'll see those things and say, that person must be so kind and generous and hospitable because God has been so kind and generous and hospitable with them. New England and specifically the northern Berkshires where we are, are a really dark place spiritually. I don't have to tell you any of you that. You all know that. And there's a million reasons why people don't want anything to do with Jesus or anything to do with church anymore. Some people have been hurt by religion or they feel like they can depend on themselves or there's something, there's something going on. And so even going to church, a church that preaches that we're sinful and broken and need Jesus like our church, just being here is very countercultural. And so if we as individuals are going to be a light in this area, that's too much responsibility to hold by ourselves. And so the first, the, the primary challenge I think of this text is partly to say we need Jesus to change us and we need his light in us. Because when we look out at how much darkness there is around, it's just overwhelming. It is and it should be. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't be looking around going, oh, I can totally handle this. Like, Williamstown, I got it. Like, there's, there's just no way. And so we need Jesus and his true light in us. And so let this text also be a challenge to us to try to walk closer to Jesus to try to talk to him in prayer, to listen to him, to read his word, to gather with other believers. Like, let this also be a challenge just to draw near to Jesus. Because we need his light. We need Jesus to be our light. We are salt because of the one who's the true salt of the earth who dwells in us. And we're light in this world because, as Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. We're salt and light only because of the one who dwells in us, only because of God's presence with us. It's like Moses when he says, like, I won't go up from here without your presence. That's how we need to be. 
We need to say, I'm not going to go out from here without your presence, because if I try to go without your presence, I'm just going to walk in darkness. And, and we know this is true because attributes like being kind and gentle and loving, these attributes that we need to flow out of us, they only flow out of us if they're overflowing from within us. As First John says, we love because he first loved us. We always know this is true, but what flows from the heart is what is actually going to get played out. We need to experience God's deep love and his kindness, his preserving power, his saltiness, and his truth, his light. We need those things to experience them ourselves if we're ever going to be conduits of them, going to be messengers of them to this broken world. And if our goal is to fulfill this command to be salt and light by ourselves, it's impossible to do. I don't think I can say that enough. Every single law in the Bible, we break, we mess up. Every single command we don't fulfill, and every single command Jesus fulfills. And so when we see you be salt, you be light, we have to say we can't, but Jesus can. And so with Jesus then... With Jesus, we can. We're not really listening to these commands if we think we can fulfill them on our own. It's impossible to do. And in fact, we're going to hell unless Jesus saves us. So we're not saved because we obey. Like Jesus doesn't look at you and go, you have been so salty and so much light. Like I'm going to save you. We're saved. We're loved in order to go be salt and light. And this isn't just me saying it. Here's Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Do you hear that? The Lord loves you because he loves you. There's no other reason. He loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That doesn't make you more lovely to him. He loves you because he loves you. You're saved in order to obey. You're not saved because you obey. And so we're saved in order to become the salt of the earth and light of the world. And so when we let Jesus into our life like that, and we're saved, then we get to go be the salt of the earth and light of the world. So church, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're God's plan A for this place this town, this community, we're plan A. And we're only the salt of the earth and light of the world because the one who preserves us and who lightens our darkness. So let's invite Jesus further into our lives to penetrate deeper and deeper and bring his light and salt into us so that we can then go and change this world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and for... Sending your son, Jesus, thank you for the Christmas season where we get to celebrate the joy of you sending your son and the joy of family and love and all the things that come with that. God, we know that we can't do what you ask us to do alone. And so thank you for sending your son to do it with us. And so, God, be with us as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.